you ever wondered what it's like to experience the magic that happens when the characters in your head become real to other people? I have. I'm Maddie Margarita, and this is Character Floss, a deep dive into the psyche of compelling characters and the authors who create them. Today, we are welcoming back my friend, Don't Make a Face, Matt, and my one of my favorite authors, Matt Coyle. Um, Matt is the best-selling author of the Rick Cahill P.I. Crime Series. His novels have won the Anthony Award, the Seamus Award, the Lefty Award, the San Diego Book Award, among others, and have been nominated for numerous Anthony, McCavity, Seamus, and Lefty Awards. Matt has gone on to publish eight Rick Cahill novels, including his latest, Last Redemption, the eighth in the series, in the award-winning series. Matt is, Matt is a graduate of UC Santa Barbara and lives in San Diego with his yellow lab, Angus. Hi, Matt. Hello. Thanks for having me. Let's let's make this look like we've never talked before. That's the way I feel all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, so um, you've written book eight in the series, uh, Last Redemption. So my first question is, how do you go about writing book after book that just keep getting better, where every review I read says, this is better than his last? Mm. Uh, so start off with an easy question. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, I just try to write the books that I want to read. Um, yeah, clearly, it is a series. So generally, there's some sort of, uh, or often there's something left over from the last book or Rick is dealing with um, internally, sometimes physically. And so that's kind of that's kind of a starting off point for me or jumping off point for me. Um, the, the way I start every book from far back as I remember is with Rick's major subplot. What is going on in his life that is giving him difficulty and would be exasperated by exacerbated by taking a case. And that's the easy part. The subplots for me, the major Rick thing. Um, and then I try to find a story. Maybe sometimes they overlap with what's going on in his life, but regardless, it always makes his life more difficult. Um, and I, just, I'm, <clears throat> I revise a lot. So it takes me nine months to probably write a book. And uh, I write a, my first draft is like an outline because I don't outline. So I just throw in everything and then I cut, cut, cut and revise, revise. So I revise a fair amount. I probably revise a book four times or more before I turn it in. So hopefully that, um, uh, you know, cooks things down to a good story. Angus came by to say hello. Oh, hi, Angus. Um, so uh, it wrote. It took you ten years to write your first novel. Now you're down to writing them in what? How long does it take you to write a novel now? Well, I'd say about nine months um, to to get it where it needs to be. I mean, you have a little bit less than a year with each contract. Um, yeah, it's about nine months. It's yeah, it took me. 10 years, you know, it's because I was getting rejected. Well, for, you know, you don't really, it took me five years to probably write a book and then three to five years of rejections. And then finally a yes. And then more revision, two yeses, actually, you got to get a yes from the agent and then a yes from the, from the publisher. Um, but I wish I could do it quicker. I know someone, uh, I'm doing an interview with Wednesday night, Megan Beaumont, who writes a thousand books every year and it's kind of obnoxious, but, uh, I'm sorry. Did you say a thousand books every year? She's written 11 books in a year before, but she does. I think she averages like five or something. It's crazy. That That is crazy. Yeah. So um, 
you're um, you're writing. You've got um, Rick. You're writing book. Each book is better than the last. When you finish the um, yeah, don't give me that. We all know that's true. Uh, so when you finish the book, do you are you thinking about the next book and saying, okay, I'm going to have to finish this in a way where I have to write another book, or do you finish that book and say, okay, this is the end of that story, and then you start totally um, from ground zero on your next book. I would say that there's generally, um, some carryover, uh, the last book, well, the book before the last, um, lost tomorrow. I had Rick, uh, lose his eyesight. And so I was definitely, well, I wasn't really thinking I want to end it because I thought it was a great ending. That was great. And then I had to write the next book and I thought, well, that wasn't so great. That wasn't a great idea. And but, the next um, book was Blind Vigil, right? Blind Vigil, yeah, which was right. the last book. Um, but that did, I mean, clearly I had somewhere, to, I had a jumping off point clearly there. And um, I'm trying to think of the end of Blind Vigil. Um, can't. Um, there's, there's, I have an inkling. I like the book. I just turned in number nine and I have an inkling for 10 where I want to go with it. But kind of a hazy idea, but I, I'm not completely, I am a blank pager, but I'm not completely blank on the next book, but I do like to not think too much about it. Cause I want to, I've been in, you know, in the book for nine, 10 months. And just when you turn the thing in and you're ready to kind of decompress <clears throat> a few weeks later, you get notes back to revise. And I thought, well, I can't even start the new book yet or whatever. Well, in Blind Vigil, we see um, Rick suffering from a pretty severe physical um, disability. Uh, and you think, oh, my God, how could things get worse for a detective than <laughs> to be a blind detective? But somehow, somehow you managed to make things worse for him. Yeah. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the storyline and, and how you did that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um... As the book, as Blind, as uh, Last Redemption opens, Rick is seemingly in one of the best um, parts of his life, one of the best times of his life. His girlfriend uh, is pregnant, and that's she's had in her in her marriage, she's divorced. She had a couple of miscarriages. She's forty one now. Rick's forty two. She thought she'd never be able to have a child. Rick, as, as those who follow along know, his wife was murdered before the first book. Uh, yesterday's echo and he's hasn't had any success many successful relationships since then he thought he'd never be a father and they're they're gonna have this miracle child and so there's that happiness that lasted about a week for him when he found out that he has been diagnosed with chronic chronic traumatic um encephalopathy which is the uh cte the football disease that's you know people who are sports fans probably know about it's um, brain disease that is the early or generally dementia, um, loss of cognition, dementia, and then early death. So that's what he's staring in the face. He's been diagnosed that the you can't really get a conclusive diagnosis until after the person has died when you open up the brain. That's true. You know that was true when I was researching the book. As far as I know, it's still true. But he's been diagnosed with it, and it makes sense. I had uh, one of the rules I had when I first started writing, I didn't know anything about writing a book or series, but I had, I did want to have everything that happened physically and mentally to Rick to have uh, repercussions. He couldn't escape his past. 
And I didn't, I didn't think when I started writing him 20 years ago that, Hey, let's give him a debilitating disease that'll shorten his lifespan. (laughs) Um, But as things progressed, as this disease became known, I thought, well, he probably does have it because he boxed golden gloves as a kid for, I think, three years. He played football, Pop Warner, high school, a couple of years of college, maybe. So that's like 10 years of football. And he's had numerous concussions as a private investigator, as a cop. Um, didn't really delve in his time as a cop, but I'm sure he was a little physical. So it kind of makes sense that he's got this disease that a lot of people probably have and don't know it. And um, I didn't see... I really didn't see any other way for his life to, to, to be true to what's going on in his life, his fictional life, but to have this horrible disease. And he does. <clears throat> and in the book, <clears throat> in, his, in a concession to a, a successful relationship and now to be a father, he has scaled back his private investigative business to just doing background checks, checks for um, major corporations in the Southern California area. And actually, it's worked out well for him. He's gotten some good... Um, um, because of people he knows, he's gotten some good job offers. So it's really financially he's in better shape than he'd been doing the other things, but he kind of misses being in the middle of the action. He misses helping people that really need help and have no place else to go and, and confronting evil head on, but he's made concessions because he's, that's what you're supposed to do. I've been told I, I did research on when you're in a successful relationship, what you're supposed to do, but, um, I had to do reading on that. Did a little reading on that. Yeah, it was kind of uh, boring, but yeah, I had to read up. Um, and so, so in the book, in the story, Moira, his his sometime partner, she's a private investigator, has asked Rick to surveil her son. Her she's a widow; she's got an only son. He's twenty four, and he has been um, his girlfriend got a restraining order out on him, a temporary restraining order, and Moira's afraid he's broken it and he's perhaps stalking her. So. Rick is um, an opportunity to get out, get out of it. He, he works at home. He works upstairs in his office, typing, talking to people on the phone, something he doesn't really like doing, but he's doing because he's, he's wants to be, wants to do the right thing. He, doesn't, he figures I'll get out of the house for a couple nights. And um, of course, someone ends up dead and things turn. As, as often they do when you're writing, yes. when you are writing a book. Right. Right. So, um, you know, in, in your earlier books, Rick was, uh, felt very much like a lone wolf. Hmm. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case now. He has relationships. And um, so I'm wondering what had to change for Rick in order for that to happen? And um, how did you change the way you wrote him? I think what had changed for Rick is that his uh, his uh, invisible hand master had to get smart and get lucky. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Um, I, I mentioned I had a rule that every all every physical and emotional scar carried over for Rick. It had repercussions. That was a, a rule I really thought about. The other rule I had too was that Rick was going to be a lone wolf. This is it. He's not going to have any partners, no Superman sidekick that can physically, ex, you know, extricate him from um, danger. No wealthy buddy who can fly him around the country that he has to go for on cases or help him financially when he gets in, um, you know, legal situations. And no um, comedic friend to lighten the mood it's rick he's stuck to his own devices and that's it and, and the dog does have a dog there is some there is a some, part-time dog yeah that's me <laughs> he's got a full-time dog 
I have a part-time job. Yeah. Um, there, there, yeah, there's a little humanity there, but, um, and I, that was going to be it. And, uh, I honestly, if I was to continue that way, I don't really think I would have written eight books or, or eight books that people wanted to read. I don't think I would have been published more than two or three because I think Rick would have been too dour and even for me too dark. Um, so what happened, uh, I, I broke this rule, no sidekicks by accident in the second book, Night Tremors. I want, I need, I need another private investigator for Rick to bump up against. It's going to be one scene. That was it. So I, Moira came out of nowhere, five foot, uh, even gal with a big attitude and Rick had done something unknowingly had taken a case from away from her. He had no idea. She knocks on his door, stares up at him and just, you know, reams him out. And once she started talking, uh, not only did Rick listen, so did I, I thought, well, she's kind of like her. So that was gonna be the one scene, but I, there were, there were op opportunities, there were opportunities for her to be further in the, in that book, a couple of different scenes where it made sense. It wasn't just shoving her in. So I thought, well, she's going to go from a one scene, um, forgettable character to multiple cameos in one book. And then she'd be a rememberable character in the past. And in, um, the third book, dark fishers, I needed someone to help Rick get some information. Rick can't, the, the police hate Rick. He's bumped. He's because of his, um, he's thought to be a guy who murdered his wife and his father was supposed to be a bad cop. So the police aren't going to help him and privatizing help getting information they can't get, they get from police sometimes. So Rick calls Moira in this, he talked to her twice on the phone in dark fishers for information. I realized, well, she's a part of his life now. He, he needs her help. So she's going to be like this peripheral character in the books. And maybe that'll show that Rick, there is some humanity to Rick and reason to care about him because there's this other character. Then I'm almost done. Then I wrote blood truth and I needed her once again for one scene. And again, she started talking and um, the, the two of them. And I realized, man, she needs to be in this book. She's in the series. She's, she's important to the series. She rounds out, she, she, she softens Rick a little bit, makes it, shows the reader that this dour character, although he's not so dour now, because he, there's a little back and forth between the two of them, some humor, some <clears throat> familial love, certainly, and also the head knocking of, of brother-sister relationship. So it does round him out and, and, uh, and humanize him. And, and, she's, and she's got her shit together. I can say that, can I? Yeah. She's got her shit together, and so, so the reader clearly knows this is a person of substance. And if she cares about Rick and really cares about him, then he's worth you know he's worth sticking with when he makes these bad decisions. And I don't think if I ever would have discovered Moira or she discovered me or Rick, that the series would have gone more than three books probably because no one went on to read them. Well, it's, it's interesting that um, she was able to break through his shell, and um, so was Leah. So. What was it about them that you think um, made them, made Rick, made you make the reader stand up and listen to them and let them in? That that maybe somebody else might, or some other kind of character might not have had that kind of success. Yeah. Uh, Lee and Rick's <clears throat> relationship, once again, Lee was going to be a character for one book, sister of uh, Rick's training. She was in uh, Lost Tomorrow's sister of Rick's training partner when he was a rookie, a boot in Santa Barbara police department. 
and she's killed all these years later in a hit and run accident. Rick goes up for the funeral and Leah, her sister, younger sister, asks, she knows Rick's a private eye now. And she asks him to investigate um, because she doesn't think the cops are on the right track. And so that's what I needed her for in that book. And they, there were going to be some scenes together and there was a relationship and there, it, it, they were, they, it, it, it was a stressful relationship in real life. So they're both kind of facing the same issues and that brought them together. And um, they, they ended up, you know, they, they, I think that kind of, when you're in a relationship, it can be when you're in a relationship, like when you're in a situation like that, it can really uh, knock down some doors that take a while to get through. So they, they um, fast track the relationship and then they're in a relationship and it's legitimate. He loves her. He, he's, um, he's making sacrifices for the relationship, something he probably hadn't done in the past, certainly not in his marriage. So um, it made sense. Once again, didn't plan it. I didn't want not only to Rick as a lone wolf PI, I want to Rick as a lone wolf person. And not because he could be do the smarmy PI stuff where he's a different woman in every book and he's, you know, betting them all. Just that I, I wanted this solitary character that um, had to, you know, he had no place else to go. But now he does and he's better. He's better for it. It's more, it's more realistic and um, more palatable. You know, I know that you never shy away from a challenge. Um, anybody who write who writes himself uh, with a blind detective uh, more than towards the end of the series, maybe midway in the series, who knows how many books there'll be, um, doesn't shy away from a challenge. But was it a challenge for you to start writing these relationships? And, you know, it's nice to write a, a lone wolf where you don't have to, you know, if you have, uh, if you're a lead child and you're writing Jack Reacher and, um, you know, you don't have all the depth and uh, interaction and dynamics. Was was that a challenge for you? Or did that come, did seemingly come natural in the world that you created? Well, I'm divorced. Uh, so yeah, it was hard. I don't know how to write it. I don't know how to live. Uh, I'm working on it right now, but I haven't had great success in male, female relationships. So yeah, it was a challenge, but it was a challenge to step outside uh, the Rick world to do it too. So yeah, that's the, the uh, it's funny, the Leah, the uh, Moira Rick scenes are the easiest ones for me to write because I've got three sisters and um, I have a, uh, had a brother who just passed away. So I know the family thing, there were five of us, uh, middle-class family and, um, you know, all fighting for spots on the couch in front of the TV. So I know sister, brother, sister relationships uh, and the antagonism that goes with all brother-sister relationships. So I can fall right into that when I'm writing um, Rick and Moira. But for Rick and Leah, um, more difficult. Got to make them, but you know, there has to be tension too. Who cares? You know, you want to read about um, a loving relationship. It, you know, that doesn't, I mean, they're in, they're in one, but where everything's going well, that's not, that's not crime fiction. Um, so when it's too difficult for me, I send Leah to Santa Barbara. There you go. There you go. You know, just well, like in too bad you can't do that in real life. That would that would be no, no, no yeah. I tried, and she tried. <laughs> I'll say my ex tried, but yeah. Well, so it's so interesting that that you accepted this challenge and that you are following the path and not taking the the controlled, easy, comfortable route for you. And I think that's one of the things that makes your books feel so fresh uh, and. Um, and risky, you know, I think 
you never know what's going to happen next because I think when you, in your head you're you know you're taking risks. So the reader is taking those risks right along with you. So it adds to even the subplots and the the plot. Um, the writing itself is great. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, that's true. I don't take much risk in, in life. I I tend to go with the flow, didn't have a grand scheme, and in terms of careers before writing, it was pretty obvious I didn't have a scheme, a grand plan. Just kind of went from job to job. I, was, I didn't really become a careerist, um, and I'm pretty lazy overall, but for some reason, when I write, I do take the, it is a, I do try to make it as, as much of a challenge as possible. I'm not sure why. But maybe it's because I finally figured out what you know why I was put on earth, what I was supposed to do, and that's to write books. Um, but yeah, I do not take the easy way out. I mean, uh, Rick was blind, and now he has CTE. So and no, he I, loves, I, he I loves Leah, and now not only does he have that, he has a potential um, offspring in the in the future. So I mean, in terms of like um, overcoming difficult seemingly insurmountable options and uh, raising the emotional stakes to the point of, oh my God, what is going to happen? Look, I have to keep turning the page. If that's the kind of book that people are looking for, they should buy your books. Uh, because it, and it was, it was interesting in the beginning, you know, like your first book, there was something about Rick that you um, really loved, even though he didn't have, I think, you know, some people wanted to fix him. Other people love train wrecks, whatever, whatever reason you, you connected with him. But the, now when you read your books, the emotional story arc, um, the subplots take, you know, center stage yeah. so well, almost, you know, you're reading, it's the, the story is pulling you through, but the emotional subplots are pulling you through too. So everything is, is driving you to the last page. So that that kind of suspense is hard to write. Is is that coming naturally to you? Are you are you pacing out the plot and the subplot? Or, um, well, I thanks for the kind words, and um, I think you kind of get you, you get it. You get what I'm trying to do. That's always good when uh, readers understand what you're trying to do, and especially you know someone that I like and respect, um, who's in the who's in the, the world and you know knows the, knows the genre. Yeah, it became, it, I never really thought I was writing thrillers, even though I think on the back of every book it says thriller, but they're not thrillers. Um, I think of all crime as crime fiction as character. Um, you know, the best are done through character, not plot driven. I mean, they're you know they're all plot driven mm -hmm. to some extent, but I think the character arcs are the most interesting things, and that's what I've always gravitated to. Well, the books I choose to read, but um, I didn't really have a plan for the books to be so emotional because they are they're just the best kind of the way rick has grown i think i've you know um the character's grown and he's getting older he's 42 in this book i think a year or two younger than you are now just a couple years yeah yeah he started out when i first started writing he was 10 years younger than me and it took 10 it took 10 years to get published so that so it makes him 20 years younger than me which just gives him a longer lifespan although not ISCTE, but um, so that was kind of um, a uh, happy accident to not get published early because he'd probably be, he'd be in his 50s now and less physical, probably. Um, and plus, uh, I think all those 
years to get published makes you a better writer. No question. Um, I'm happy now to have been rejected so often for so long. Seriously. I think it appreciate um, it more. Yeah. And it, it makes you put, you're putting the more hours in. It takes you that, you know, you become a better writer, all the hours you're putting in, but yeah, the, uh, you know, it's, you know, I write, I write Rick the way he needs to be written, but, um, you know, there are some people that don't, that don't, because I read my reviews, even the Goodreads ones, and God bless everybody who puts a review down, um, good or bad, they're invested. But some people don't really, they think he's, you know, he's too, um, we're too internal with Rick, and and I understand that, because they may be thinking, they may be thinking more of the classical private eye with the non sequiturs and, the, you know, the, the quips, which he has to a degree, but um, you're also inside his head and this guy's got a life and he's battling a lot of demons and he's now he's battling, um, a short, yeah, maybe the ultimate challenge. Yeah. 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 And I think what happened to me over the past, the past year, um, some family things makes me think more about, um, life's conclusion, things like that. So I think that bled into the book, even though, um, I lost some family members near the end of writing it. I think that you know, in revision, it bled in more and more. So yeah, it's real life. It's, uh, it's fiction, but it's real life. And Rick's gonna, he's gonna think about these things. So, um, again, the, you know, I'm, I'm so curious, personally curious about this because, you know, a lot of thrillers and mysteries are formulaic in their suspense. Uh, you know, okay, now it's time for this. And um, when you read it, you have, you can almost tell if you read enough of them, what's going to happen next. But your books are not like that. Um, and maybe because you didn't know what, I don't know if you knew what was going to happen next. I don't know. Like I said, it's very risky uh, re- reading your books and, and you're always on edge. But how, how do you time the uh, forward progression in the story and the subplots? So that they work together because, you know, the emotional changes and the emotional uh, pivot points don't happen at the same time as the plot pivot points do. Um, you know, there's a, a way to do that and that you seem to have uh, mastered. Do you, do you think about that when you are trying to decide what happens in what chapter and what should happen when um, and how you time the plot and the subplots? Or No, I probably should. No, I probably will. I probably won't be able to write anymore. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, I've emotionally crippled you. Thank you. I do think about plot plot points, which generally after I've written the book, the first draft, and I don't, I, um, you know, you've read mystery, I'm sure, for almost all your life. And when you're writing a story, they probably, they kind of through osmosis sort of show up where you expect them to, to some degree. Um, But really all I think about is change and um, uh, tension and those are the things I, I concentrate most on and the plot points kind of fill in and I miss, they're not always in the right spot. I, I like, I think it's kind of what you're getting at. Um, but I don't like the, I mean, I probably, if I wrote formulaic, I maybe have, maybe I make some more money and have more readers, but um, I just do it the way I do it. But um, I do, I do think a little bit about now the emotional things. It just kind of goes where it goes. And I did after one of my books or after I think it was a draft, I actually had a whiteboard and I put up a bunch of stickies. They had different colors. There were three colors. I think it was one was plot. One was um, sub emotional subplot. And the other one was action or something. And um, I looked at it and um, 
saw that, wow, there's a lot of pink right here, whatever color it was, which was maybe motion or something. And moving things around. But I think what I do now is that when I write that first draft, I just throw everything in there. And then when I revise, I take big chunks out. And because when I, putting the things in, it opens things. Well, it opens things up for me when I, I there'll be scenes where I know that aren't going to make the the final draft. But I know I really can't get to where I want to go until I write them. So, and I think with all of that, and some of that's more emotion than in the book. So maybe with, with pulling all that out, it kind of, uh, you know, miraculously, they end up in the right place. But um, I just very open on the, f- the first draft and no, I'm, you know, you're writing crap. It's okay. You have to get way through this to get where you're going. Now, more efficient writers don't need to do that, um, but that's what I do. Um, I, I, it's worked for me. I've, of late, in the last three books, I've questioned my writing process for some reason. I don't know why. Because it has been, you know, I mean, on a small scale, it's been fairly successful. But, uh, and it's just done, it's, it has um, stalled me from really getting in the book. And so then I think, well, you know, you've got, you've got your subplot. You know what you want to do here. And you got, you know what the ending is. You kind of know what the major plot is. The through line, just put Rick in a scene with some um, tension and he'll find the way. And that's what I always end up doing. And now, I, you know, I'm telling myself when I start the next one, I'm not going to do that delay anymore. I'm just going to throw them in, swim. You'll get there eventually. And then you'll cut what doesn't work. Let, let us know. We'll, we'll talk to you and see how that works. Um, uh, but, you know, <laughs> you have um, put Rick in, in tough situations. And like this this one right now, this um, chronic um, traumatic encephalopathy. I tried that. Um, Very hard to say. Yeah. yeah, it is. You know, the brain injury, concussion injury. Um, what, what is it about that in this situation? I mean, you, you pulled the rug out from, uh, under us once with the, um, the blind vigil at the end of, um, the last book and starting blind vigil with him, um, impaired. And now he's like, life seemingly, I, I, you almost hear the birds chirping, uh, in the beginning. And then you pull the rug out from us, uh, underneath us again. Um, why chronic, um, yeah, CTE by that. And why are the stakes so high? I mean, you know, his his child, they're, and they're not only high for him, the stakes in this book are, are high for the people in the book that he cares about. They're high yeah. for Leah. They're high for uh, Moira. Yeah. Um, why, why this situation? In, and is it exhausting for you to write these? Because everybody has a character arc in this book. It's not like, okay, there's, there's secondary characters and they show up when you need them to do what you want them to do. And um, that's it. Now, now we're invested in everybody in here. So how does, how does that happen? How do you make that happen? Well, uh, I think I gave the, the reason why, I mean, clearly I don't have, Rick doesn't have to have CTE, right. but true to that one, one of those two rules Two rules when I started, I already broke one, but it made the series better. So happy I did. So happy it happened. I don't really think it was me intervening. It was just, it happened. Uh, but the, the other one I, I always stuck to, and it always goes back, to, and that's everything has repercussions. Right. And I always go back to Jack Nicholson in Chinatown when um, the, the director, what's his name? Roman Polanski. He's the actor in this movie. Cuts his nose, slashes his nose, 
And we see Jack throughout the movie, either with a big honking bandage on, this is your um, your lead, or when he takes it off, a very ugly um, a, a healing scar with stitches. And that's the way I saw Rick's life. There's The scars are there. Maybe you don't see them all the time, but they're there. And honestly, can't, I don't. I can't really remember why I decided, yes, he has to do it. But I think it's just that this is, or he has to have it. This is the life that he's led. He's led a violent life. Some of it was directed through sports when he was younger, but there was violence. And violence has repercussions and certainly does for him. And um, Is it the same for um, Leah and Moira? Well, skipping to is that them. The, is that rule the same for them or are they... Exactly. Yeah, just, yeah, it, it, it is for, for, for everybody in this kind of messed up world that I write about. And Moira's is, you see it in this book where she is a widow. Uh, I think her husband died nine years before this book, before she read, met Rick. And she's got an only son. And Rick has always thought that, you know, she's got, her, she got as I said earlier, she got her shit together. Raising a kid, she got it down, she got everything down. We see in this book that she didn't have it down perfectly and that she there's a separation between her and her son that she could a gap that she could not close. And you see her as more um, vulnerable than you've ever seen her. And um, I, I didn't I didn't really think about in the beginning. I just needed the I needed the story and I wanted to, I wanted it to be Moira and her son because it's this stuff. This book is somewhat about family or or. or um, potential family and um, the sacrifices people make to try to keep their family together or even have one. And so then, well, if it's going to be about family, then it's got to be someone Rick cares about who's in this situation. So it had to be Moira. And with Leah, you know, she's been a good partner to Rick and kind of, you know, understanding his, his really manic need to kind of be the hero in some sense or to always find the truth. And, you know, she's, she's, she can't, he can't do that anymore. And that affects her now. It's everything that Rick, Rick has always had. Um, he's had to worry about feeding midnight. That's it. Um, other people in his life, if he, if he does something that's going to hurt him, it hurt him, but now it hurts his wife and potential child. And so it is a complete, it's a new spin for him. And the other thing is that with he and Moira, I don't, I don't even remember the question you asked because I'm old and senile, but this is, I'm going to answer the way I'm going to answer. Um, keep going. This is working. Uh, <laughs> the thing about Moira is that she's always been the, she's been the break. He's been the gas. He's been the wild hair and she's been the, you know, settle down. And in this one, I'm not going to say she's the, the wild hair, but she doesn't have control of herself completely. She doesn't have control of her emotions. And even when, with regard to Rick, and so he's got to be the one to step back and say, well, let's, let's kind of calm down. Let's figure this out and, or at least try. He tries. And so it's a little bit of a role reversal and um, something that he needs to for his potential of being a parent. So we see him maturing as we go through that. OK, so what, what is it that you hope that people feel when they read the last page of Last Redemption? Um, I'll, I will take the easy one because there's a, there can be a lot of answers to that, but might potentially be some sort of spoiler. I don't know. 
I would say they were entertained and they have a better, better feel for Rick. And, um, maybe, 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 but maybe better understand the, the, why he does the things he does. All right. So you said you were, uh, you just turned in book nine or yeah. You were, yeah. Nine. So what, what does that mean for you now? What, uh, what are you doing now? Aside from promoting mass redemption and are you, are you writing? Are you taking a break? Are you thinking? Well, I'm editing the book I just turned in that's due on the 23rd of December. Um, I tend to get it done early. I'm actually judging something. So I'm doing a lot of reading. I'm trying to catch up on a lot of reading. And that is the uh, major stress point in my life right now to finish this reading that I have to do for something. Are you allowed to say what you're judging? No, but you can figure it out. I know what you're judging. Yeah. I can figure that out. It's, you're not allowed to say it. doesn't make, I don't I've never understood why you're not allowed to say it because people that submit know exactly who's doing it. <laughs> you know, they, they know who the judges are, so I don't get it. But uh, yeah, so a lot of reading and. Um, and and promote Well, I'm sure that promoting the book um, takes a lot of your time. Do you have anything coming up? Do you have. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know when this is going to air. But uh, so it probably will be passed when, when this airs. But um, I do have in uh, first week of January, I'm doing I'm talking to the California Writers Club, which was started by Jack London. And there's various different um, uh, cities with it. And this one's in Orange County. And I'm going to be speaking from a mezzanine down at the people. So that's going to be quite interesting. I'll be well, shouting down. I like the dynamics. People. I like the power dynamic. Of yeah, that. I'll be shouting down at people, and uh, God knows what will happen there. And I'm doing Mysterious Galaxy um, on January 26th. I have a couple things that are happening in the next. I'm doing a couple of Zoom events in the next uh, two nights, but I don't. I don't. I'm not sure this will air, so um, probably be past yeah. that. But I, I've uh, been, been doing. I've had um, three in, in-person events so far. And that's probably going to be it until the end of the year. And that's been fun. It's been great to get back in front of people. You know, and it's been, they've gone, they've gone the, uh, they've gone the whole full cycle. Um, Warwick's in La Jolla in San Diego, my hometown was the best event I probably ever had. And I saw uh, it was packed. It was packed. It was great. It was, uh, you know, people were happy to be out. And I just did one another place that I love. They're great. And uh, I had two friends show up. So that was it. So um, you get the highs and the lows. Yeah. Just like, just like everybody. See, everybody can relate to that, Matt. Right. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you very much for taking time to be here today. It's always fun and entertaining and really interesting to talk to you and hear how things are going for you. Um, we are, I'm totally invested in Rick Cahill and what happens to him and what happens to you and Hope things go the way that you want them to go. Well, thank you. I always appreciate being here and you always make me think, which is not the best thing, but I do it anyway. I, I come uh, with uh, bearing Tylenol. I, I'm the headache giver. I give headaches. I don't get them. That's my, that's my newest t-shirt. <laughs> You're still married, uh, so good luck. All right. Well, thank you. And um, good luck. Um, everybody, thank you for joining us. Um, for more information about Matt and his books, you can turn to mattcoilbooks.com. Um, is that correct, Matt? Just That's right. Okay. All right. There you go. And for more interesting conversations like these, you can please uh, hit that notification bell, like, subscribe,
comment. We appreciate that. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again. I am Maddie Margarita, and this is Character Floss. <laughs>